everyone, and welcome to the April 10th edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarn and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal found that a general liability insurance policy has no potential workers' compensation coverage. Here's what happened in the case of Delgadillo versus United States Liability Insurance Company. Sacramento Lopez brought an action against Elena Delgadillo and Jesus Cortez in 2009, claiming he had suffered injuries in a fall from the roof of their property in Hayward, California, where he was working as their employee. Lopez also alleged that Delgadillo and Cortez had violated labor code requirements to pay overtime wages and provide meal and rest breaks. Delgadillo and Cortez tendered the defense of the Lopez litigation to their business owner's insurance carrier, which was United States Liability Insurance Company, which denied the claim. The insurance policy contained standard exclusions for any obligation of the insured under a workers' compensation, disability benefits, or unemployment compensation law, or any similar law. Delgadillo and Cortez sued the carrier for indemnity after they lost their case brought by Lopez. Their cause of actions were based on the theory that USLI had a contractual obligation to defend and indemnify them in the Lopez litigation. They also claimed that through an agent, the carrier misled them as to the coverage it would provide. The carrier demurred the second amended complaint primarily on the ground that the policy did not cover Lopez's claims for bodily injury or labor code violations. The trial court sustained the demur to the Delgadillo and Cortez action without leave to amend. It took judicial notice of the verdict from the negligence claim in the Lopez litigation, which indicated that Lopez sustained his injury during the course of his employment by Delgadillo and Cortez. Because the policy explicitly excluded coverage for bodily injuries sustained by an employee in the course of employment, the court ruled that plaintiffs could not state a cause of action for breach of contract against the carrier. And the Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal in the unpublished case. It ruled that the trial court correctly concluded the policy provided no potential for coverage, and therefore the carrier had no duty to defend the plaintiffs in the Lopez litigation, and there was no breach of contract. The Justice Department has joined a California whistleblower lawsuit that accuses insurance giant United Health Group of fraud in its popular Medicare Advantage health plans. Justice officials filed legal papers to intervene in the suit, first brought by whistleblower James Swobin in 2009 in a Los Angeles federal court. The government also sought a court order to combine Swobin's case with that of another whistleblower. Swobin has accused the insurer of gaming the Medicare Advantage payment system by making patients look sicker than they are. The combined cases could prove to be among the larger frauds ever against Medicare with damages that could top $1 billion. The United Health spokesman denied any wrongdoing by the company. 
Medicare Advantage is a popular alternative to traditional Medicare. The privately run health plans have enrolled more than 18 million people, about a third of those eligible for Medicare, at a cost to taxpayers of more than $150 billion a year. Although the plans generally enjoy strong support in Congress, they have been the target of at least a half-dozen whistleblower lawsuits alleging patterns of overbilling and fraud. In most of the prior cases, Justice Department officials have decided not to intervene, but a decision to intervene means that the Justice Department is taking over investigating the case, greatly raising the stakes. Patrick Burns, the Associate Director of Taxpayers Against Fraud in Washington, said the intervention of the government in this case is a very big development. He added that this is not one company engaged in episodic bad behavior, but a lucrative business plan that appears to be national in scope. The government said it wants to consolidate the Swoban case with another whistleblower action filed in 2011 by former United Health executive Benjamin Poling and unsealed this March. Poling also has alleged that the insurer generated hundreds of millions of dollars or more in overpayments. When Congress created the current Medicare Advantage program in 2003, it expected to pay higher rates for sicker patients than for people in good health using a formula called risk score. But overspending tied to inflated risk scores has repeatedly been noted by government auditors, including the Government Accountability Office. A series of articles published in 2014 by the Center for Public Integrity found that these improper payments have cost taxpayers tens of billions of dollars. The two whistleblower complaints allege that United Health has had a practice of asking the government to reimburse it for underpayments based upon higher after-the-fact risk scores but did not report claims for which it had received too much money despite knowing some of these claims had inflated risk scores. The Justice Department has said it also is investigating risk score payments to other Medicare Advantage insurers, but has not said whether it plans to take action against any of them. The California Department of Insurance said that Castle Point National Insurance Company, the affiliate of the defunct Tower Group, has been ordered into formal liquidation. The March 30th order of liquidation by the San Francisco Superior Court was the final judicial stage of a planned and complex process of winding up a group of financially impaired insurers. The California Department of Insurance started the process in early 2016 when it took the lead in convincing insurance commissioners in six other states to redomicile all of the insurers within the Tower Insurance Group to California in order to achieve an orderly conservation and liquidation of the companies. The second phase of the plan required the court to order Castle Point into conservation, and appoint the California Department of Insurance Commissioner as conservator. 
as conservator, the commissioner developed and implemented a multi-stage conservation and liquidation plan that infused $200 million in liquid assets into Castle Point and locked in the resources required to ensure the uninterrupted administration and payment of Castle Point's policyholder claims during the conservation phase. The final phase of the plan is the entry of a liquidation order. The order triggers the legal obligations of the National Network of Insurance Guarantee Associations to step up to pay Castle Point's insurance claims in a timely and fair manner. All Castle Point claims continue to be adjusted and paid throughout the eight-month conservation phase of this process. The order of liquidation also sets a deadline for filing any and all claims against Castle Point as December 31, 2017. Notice of the claim's bar date, along with a proof of claim form and instructions, will be distributed by the Commissioner's Conservation Liquidation Office in the coming weeks. And now our crime report. A medical doctor who fled the United States nearly 15 years ago and faked his own death to avoid prosecution in a healthcare fraud case was sentenced to 29 months in federal prison for fleeing justice. 58-year-old Tigran Savagian, a naturalized U.S. citizen originally from Armenia who was residing in Newport Beach prior to fleeing the country in September 2002, pleaded guilty this November to one count of unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. Savagian, who operated medical clinics in Los Angeles and Fresno, had agreed to plead guilty back in 2002 in a $2.4 million scheme to defraud Medi-Cal by submitting bills for tests that had not been performed. In many of the cases where bills were presented, the patients were actually dead. After being ordered to appear in federal court for an arraignment in that case, he fled to Russia, leaving behind his wife and son. The United States Embassy in Moscow received notification that Savagian had died of pneumonia and that his body had been cremated. The embassy then issued a report documenting the death and Savagian's defense counsel submitted that report to federal prosecutors. Soon after, Savagian obtained a fraudulent Russian passport in a different name and relocated to Hurghada, Egypt, where he occasionally worked as a scuba instructor. In January 2013, after lengthy and unsuccessful attempts to locate him or to obtain further confirmation of his death, prosecutors dismissed the healthcare fraud case. Svajin was then taken into custody by Egyptian authorities on August 1st this year, or last year, nearly 14 years after he fled the United States, after they determined he was traveling on a fraudulent Lithuanian passport. Egyptian authorities discovered in his residence an old United States passport with his true name. When he pleaded guilty, Svajin admitted that he paid a Russian police officer in 2002 to submit an official report about his death to the United States Embassy. Operation Backlash has been an extensive FBI-led undercover investigation that revealed a widespread workers' compensation kickback scheme 
including attorneys, doctors, and medical providers who referred patients for health services in exchange for money. Operation Backlash was first announced in November 2015 when the initial round of federal indictments was handed down. San Diego chiropractor Stephen J. Rigler and San Diego workers' compensation attorney Sean O'Keefe previously pleaded guilty to federal charges. Law enforcement then began following the trail of dirty money, and it took them in many different directions. As alleged in one of the indictments, Los Angeles radiologist Ronald Groost paid bribes to a San Diego chiropractor in exchange for patient referrals. The bribes were funneled to the chiropractor by way of Groost's corporation, Willows Consulting, which authorities say is a shell company. The checks were labeled professional services, but this was allegedly a sham. Groost's practice, California Imaging Network Medical Group, has clinics up and down the state. Trial in the case pending against Dr. Groost was set for June 6, 2017. But in March, defendants uh, Groost and California Imaging Network Medical Group and Willows Consulting Company rejected a plea offer in the case. On April 7, his attorneys moved for a continuance, claiming that they did not have sufficient time to prepare his defense. Last December, they say they were provided with digital discovery documents by the prosecutors, which were placed on a two-terabyte drive that can hold millions of documents and recordings. Prosecutors responded, objecting to a trial continuance beyond August. No ruling has been made. Thus, the Groost case remains in process with an unknown trial date. The U.S. Attorney's Office also announced federal indictments against additional defendants. They include patient recruiters Furman Iglesias, Carlos Aguelo, Miguel Morales, and four corporations. The corporations are Providence Scheduling Incorporated, MedEx Solutions Incorporated, Prime Holdings International, and Meridian Medical Resources, doing business as Meridian Rehab Care. The three federal defendants are accused of recruiting individuals to file workers' compensation claims resulting from an on-the-job injury. The defendants then directed these patients to specific chiropractors who, in exchange for dozens of new workers' compensation patients each month, agreed to meet a quota set by defendants for referrals of the new patients for ancillary goods and services such as MRIs and DME from specific providers. Providence Scheduling allegedly oversaw the scheduling of applicants recruited by Aguello and others and their assignment to a primary training physician, which included chiropractors. Near the end of March, Providence Scheduling entered into an agreement to plead guilty. The agreement has been filed with the federal court, but remains sealed until a process through a magistrate judge for review and then to final disposition by the federal judge in charge of the case. And in regulatory news, a group of compliance professionals and staff from the Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General met earlier this year to discuss ways to measure the effectiveness of compliance programs. 
Following this meeting, the OIG published guidelines on how healthcare organizations can measure the effectiveness of their healthcare fraud compliance programs. The new 54-page guide covers how organizations can evaluate standards and policies, administration, stakeholder screening and assessments, training internal reporting system monitoring, non-compliance discipline, and investigations and remedial measures. The purpose of this new guide is to give healthcare organizations as many ideas as possible and to be broad enough to help any time of organization and let the organizations choose which ideas best suit their needs. Rather than use all of the healthcare fraud compliance guidelines, the Office of the Inspector General recommends that organizations select a small sample of guidelines to implement each year. Leaders should choose measures based on the organizational's risk areas, size, resources, and an industry segment. Some of the standards for an effective compliance program include appropriate coding policies and procedures, and internal and external compliance audit standards and procedures together with a record retention policy. There needs also to be healthcare stakeholder interaction policies such as how hospitals and physicians, pharmaceutical and medical device representatives and vendors should engage with each other, and a gift and gratuity acceptance policy. Having a compliance program in place may prevent healthcare fraud and abuse cases, but healthcare organizations should ensure their program is effective by regularly auditing the program and any internal reporting systems. The Office of the Attorney General suggested that organizations aim to audit their compliance program on an annual basis and use each year's results to analyze and benchmark their performance. The audit process should ensure that the program and any related symptoms check for healthcare fraud violations based on updated laws and regulations. Healthcare organizations may also want to consider using a third party to complete a compliance program audit. Additionally, the federal watchdog recommended that healthcare organizations develop an internal reporting system for employees to identify potential violations. The system should ensure anonymity and confidentiality for reporting and be easily accessible to all employees in the organization. The WCRB Governing Committee voted unanimously to submit a mid-year pure premium rate filing, which is 16.5% lower than the pure premium rate as of January 1, and 7.8% less than the insurance commissioner's approved average on January 1 and the advisory pure premium rate. The committee noted lower medical loss and allocated loss adjustment expense development, continued acceleration in claim settlement, and recent indemnity claim frequency decreases in support of the filing. The committee's decision was based on the WCIRB Actuarial Committee's analysis of insurer loss and loss adjustment experience, which was reviewed at public hearings. The actual commit- Actuarial Committee also noted that cumulative trauma claims continued to increase, particularly in the Los Angeles Basin. 
In addition, medical severities are beginning to increase after several years of more modest severity trends driven by Senate Bill 863. Despite these upward pressures on system costs, the governing committee believed that lower frequency and favorable loss and allocated loss adjustment expense development, partially driven by increases in claim settlement rates, warranted a reduction in rates. The filing and all related documents are available in the Publications and Filing section of the WCIRB website. And in medical news, in January, President Trump put the pharmaceutical industry on notice that drug prices were too high, and he claimed that drug companies were getting away with murder. He pointed out that despite being the largest drug market in the world, government does not bid properly. But when he changes that, it will save billions of dollars, or so he says. Trump lamented that the pharmaceutical lobby impeded the ability for the government to negotiate drug prices. Indeed, Congress has failed to enact sufficient reforms to lower drug prices in the past. When Congress was drafting the Medicare Part D prescription drug benefit, Big Pharma added a provision which banned the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services from negotiating with drug companies to set prices. Last December, the Senate blocked a measure from Senator Bernie Sanders to amend the 21st Century Cures Act, allowing the importation of prescription drugs from other countries and for Medicare to negotiate drug prices. So in March, Trump tweeted that he is working on a new system to bring down drug prices. In response, two of the biggest pharmaceutical firms announced a few weeks later that they will lower the cost of their pharmaceuticals. Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals said that its new treatment for atopic dermatitis, a painful skin condition, will now cost $37,000, a substantial decrease from the $50,000 price tag for similar treatments. Roach Holdings lowered its price for a multiple sclerosis drug to $65,000, 25% cheaper compared to a 15-year-old competitor, Rebif. The Regeneron CEO said that Sanofi and Regeneron and the payers are heading toward setting a new paradigm. And the CEO of data analytics company Real Endpoints said that pharma companies will have to lower drug prices under President Trump. Marathon Pharmaceuticals paused the launch of its new drug, Mflaza, facing intense public scrutiny regarding the drug's astronomical $89,000 price tag. The Novo Nordisk president promised to limit the annual increase in their drug prices. Novo Nordisk followed the leadership of the chief executive of Allergen, who issued a social contract promising to limit the annual increase of the price of its pharmaceuticals. And Merck, Johnson & Johnson, and Lilly all unveiled plans to increase their transparency regarding their drug pricing. Malagrot Pharmaceuticals, based in England with its U.S. headquarters in St. Louis, Missouri, 
produces specialty pharmaceutical products, including generic drugs and imaging agents. Key generic specialty products include hydrocodone API and tablets and oxycodone API and tablets. As of 1988, Mallinckrodt was the only company in the U.S. that is allowed to receive cocaine, which it has used to make cocaine hydrochloride, a prescription drug used in hospitals as a local anesthetic by eye and ear, nose, and throat doctors. The Drug Enforcement Administration trained its sights on Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals to combat an escalating opioid endemic epidemic in 2011. This was the first time the DEA had targeted a manufacturer of opioids for alleged violations of laws designed to prevent diversion of legal narcotics to the black market. And it would become the largest prescription drug case the agency has pursued. Ultimately, the DEA and federal prosecutors would contend that the company ignored its responsibility to report suspicious orders as 500 million of its pills ended up in Florida between 2008 and 2012. This was 66% of all oxycodone sold in the state. So government investigators alleged in internal documents that the company's lack of due diligence could have resulted in nearly 44,000 federal violations and exposed it to $2.3 billion in fines. But six years later, after four investigations that spanned five states, the government has taken no legal action against the company. Instead, the company has reached a tentative settlement with federal prosecutors. Under the proposal, which remains confidential, Mallinckrodt would agree to pay $35 million fine and admit to no wrongdoing. Mallinckrodt's response to the claims was that everyone in Florida knew what was going on, but they had no duty to report it. And this was according to an internal summary of the case prepared by federal prosecutors. The case shows how difficult it is for government to hold a drug manufacturer responsible for the damage done by its product. DE investigators said they worked for years to build the biggest case of their careers, only to watch it falter on uncertain legal territory and in the face of stiff resistance from the company. A common antibiotic called doxycycline can disrupt the formation of negative thoughts and fears in the brain and may prove useful in treating or preventing post-traumatic stress disorder. An especially designed trial involving 76 healthy volunteers who were given either the drug or a placebo dummy pill, those who were on the doxycycline had a 60% lower fear response than those who were not. The scientists said that the antibiotic blocks certain proteins outside nerve cells called matrix enzymes, which our brains need to form memories. They claim to have demonstrated a proof of principle for an entirely new treatment strategy for PTSD. PTSD is caused by an overactive fear memory and includes a broad range of psychological symptoms that can develop after someone goes through a traumatic event. 
The team would now like to explore dioxoxylene's potential effects further, including in a phenomenon called reconsolidation of fear memories. This is an approach to helping people with PTSD in which memories and associations can be changed after an event when the patient experiences or imagines similar situations. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news. Thank you.